What was the significance of the death of Iraq weapons inspector Dr. David Kelly in the greater international context? Was there a reason for murdering Dr. Kelly more onerous than his narrative opposing the weapons of mass destruction pretext? Are there plausible links between Kelly's position as head of the Defense Microbiology Division at the Porton Down Science and Technology Lab and the rise almost 20 years later of the COVID pandemic? If the WHO is planning a pandemic treaty with even tighter restrictions on human rights and liberty to address the next expected pandemic, is there a means for humanity to resist and fight back? On the season finale of the Global Research News Hour, we've invited investigative journalist and podcast producer James Corbett of the Corbett Report onto the show to talk about the case of Dr. David Kelly, what drew him to it as well, and how it may be connected to biowarfare exercises, including the debut of the recent pandemic. James Corbett is our feature guest on the show. On this week's program, digging deeper into the death of Dr. David Kelly with James Corbett. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of June 30th, 2023. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are features on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We acknowledge this program was produced on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji, Cree, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. Settlers who came to occupy the land could not do so as if there weren't people here first, and the resources on the land need to be secured through respectful agreements, not faulty promises. We are determined to address these faults in our path to restore better relationships into our future. Now it's time for News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Listeners should know that some of the articles may run against common messaging about sensitive subjects and are not all endorsed by this radio station. The EU, along with Australia, Canada and the UK, is ground zero for global biomedical totalitarianism. Via World Health Organization, quote, In June 2023, WHO will take up the European Union-EU system of digital COVID-19 certification to establish a global system that will help facilitate global mobility and protect citizens across the world from ongoing and future health threats, including pandemics. This is the first building block of the WHO Global Digital Health Certification Network, or GDHCN, that will develop a wide range of digital products to deliver better health for all, unquote. The corrupt pharmaceutical industry tool nitwit Rochelle Walensky has resigned her post as CDC director in disgrace to be replaced by somehow an even more despicable technocrat with no apparent regard of any kind 
for the serfs' welfare. That comes from the article, COVID Propaganda Roundup, Self-Assembling Nanoparticles Developed for New Vaccines, EU Activates Vaccine Passport Regime, by Ben Partee, posted June 28th, originally published on the Daily Bell. With Ukraine's counteroffensive in its third week, it is beyond any doubt that it has been nothing more than a major failure. Ukraine and the West, out of desperation, thought that a saving grace was provided in the form of Prigozhin's mutiny. To their disappointment, Russian unity prevailed, and now the West is scrambling to provide Ukraine with even more funds as the counteroffensive stagnates. The Biden official appeared disappointed that Russian blood did not spill on the streets of Moscow because of Wagner's mutiny. It also shows how the West still has very little understanding of Russia when considering Joseph Borrell, who believes Russian power is quote-unquote cracking rather than strengthening following the purging of traitorous elements. That comes from the article, the U.S. had anticipated, quote, more violence and bloodshed, unquote, in Wagner's mutiny. By Ahmed Adel, posted June 28th, originally published on Infobricks. Eritrea is the only Africa that voted against it, and since has become the, quote, unquote, darling ally of Russia. In mid-June, the Africa Peace Initiative headed by South African Cyril Ramaphosa, underscored the, the importance of access to both Russia and Ukraine uninterrupted supply of grains and fertilizer. Ukraine is concerned about the huge destruction of its nation. Africans think of food security. Russia's dream is to deal with NATO and United States at its backyard Africans called for withdrawal of Russian troops from Ukraine as the well-refined step to end the one-and-a-half-year-old conflict. The latest developments, especially relating to Wagner Group incorporated into the Ministry of Defense, the question many are asking is how this will impact on Wagner forces in Africa. For some of us in the academia, After a bit of brainstorming, many experts have arguments from various perspectives. That comes from the article, The Standoff Between Russia's Defense Ministry and Wagner's Prigozhin Implications for Africa. By Kester Ken Klomega, posted June 28th. You'd think that the hapless DC neocons, Antony Blinken and his boss, Victoria Nuland, plus the gang at Spook Central, would have learned a lesson about the diminishing returns of color revolutions, namely that these bold pranks blow back and not in a good way. The New York Times informs us that U.S. intel was well aware weeks beforehand of the developing coup attempt by Yevgeny Prigozhin and his personal army, the Wagner Group. Congressional leaders were briefed a day prior to its rollout, while golly, Can you suppose for a New York minute that Russia's intel agency didn't know all about it too? A vast array of explanations for this bizarre wartime vaudeville can be found in every corner of the internet. 
That comes from the article Coup Coup. U.S. Intel had foreknowledge of Prigozhin quote-unquote coup attempt by James Howard Kunzler, posted June 28th, originally published on Kunzler's site. The offshore concentration camp system established and prosecuted by respective federal governments has become the envy for autocrats, populists, and reactionaries the world over. Fact-finding missions have been made by European Union members' states. The model is mesmerizing officials in the UK. Its credentials of cruelty and suffering are beyond doubt. 14 deaths since 2012 marked by gross medical neglect, suicide, and murder by overtly enthusiastic guards. Spokesperson for the Refugee Action Collective, Ian Rintoul, suggested that the legacy on Nauru, quote, will forever stain the record of both sides of Australian politics, unquote. That comes from the article, Nauru's Refugee Stain, Australia's Continued Offshore Processing Regime, by Dr. Binoy Campmark, posted June 28th. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. I would like to stress that my next guest, James Corbett, has for some time in the past been a colleague of Global Research, producing several videos for GRTV. Like Global Research News Hour, he has not only interviewed individuals with rare appearances on mainstream media, but he is seriously digging into issues of substance that professional reporters, for whatever reason, seem to refuse to go down that road. He therefore is known for taking popular dissenting views on the U.S. establishment narratives on 9-11, geopolitics, eugenics, the police state, and more. Before I welcome him onto the show, I would like to say he spoke at the recent National Citizens Inquiry into Canada's response to COVID-19, the underreported accounting of large numbers of witnesses and experts speaking freely on the pandemic Full transparency, I too testified at this inquiry when it was in Winnipeg. So here is just a brief clip of his presentation broadcast in Ottawa on the 18th of May, 2023. Uh, In order to start in on these subjects, I think we need to establish some ground facts. And so it would help probably to know what is the World Health Organization. And for those who don't know, the World Health Organization was founded as a specialized agency of the United Nations in 1948, specifically to promote, quote, the attainment by all peoples of the highest possible level of health. And it proposes to achieve this task by acting as, quote, the directing and coordinating authority on international health work. All right, excellent. That that sounds noble. It sounds like something that people could get behind, but as always, the devil is in the details. So some questions that might arise as we hear these words um, that come from the the founding charter of the World Health Organization. What is health? And who determines the highest possible level of health, let alone how to attain it? 
And these aren't idle questions. Um, as I know you know from the very impactful, harrowing testimony that you have heard over the course of this inquiry, the answers to those questions really do go to the heart of what we are facing, what we have seen over the past three years, certainly, and what we might see again in the future if we allow this to continue. Lockdowns, mandates, travel restrictions, forced medical interventions and procedures, and rule by decree of governmental or presumed health authorities. So this is an extremely important subject, and uh, I, I just want to lay that out before we start diving into the details, because although the worst of the COVID hysteria may or may not be behind us, I think the, the real battle is only now beginning, and that battle is a battle over the definition of and the de declaration of and the the ability to govern over the next, quote unquote, the next pandemic, which we are constantly assured is right around the corner. So uh, this is an incredibly important issue. This is Michael Welch for the Global Research News Hour. This week, we're going to talk about a major incident almost 20 years ago today, the, the death of the microbiologist and weapons inspector, Dr. David Kelly. It was dismissed by the Hutton inquiry as a suicide uh, springing from the grueling interrogation he got from the UK House of Commons and uh, the parliamentary committee. Uh, but there have been loads of detailed research put together by independent investigators, leaving little doubt that it was camouflage for an actual murder. Uh, I went over some of the details with Dr. David Halpin uh, several weeks ago. Uh, today, we're going to focus on why he died, you know, and, and what, what threat did he represent to the UK figures? And, and how is this legend playing out on the world stage today? Today, I have none other than uh, James Corbett of the Corbett Report, an outlet for independent critical analysis of politics, society, history, and geoeconomics and economics. Um, operating on the principle of open source intelligence and, and providing podcasts, interviews, articles, and, and other stuff about the breaking news and, and important issues from 9-11 truth and false flag terror to the big brother police state, eugenics, geopolitics, the central banking fraud, and more. So James, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I, I really appreciate your presence on the show this week. I appreciate you having me on to talk about this incredibly important topic. Yeah. Now, uh, just I'm wondering, uh, like, you, you've been pretty busy lately, haven't you? You've been off to England. You went to, you attended the National Citizens Inquiry uh, uh, back in April. So you're, you're probably a little bit more, uh, you know, in sight than, uh, than uh, normal, or, or maybe not. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what normal is yet, but I've been ex exceptionally busy. Uh, you are correct on that. Yeah. So anyway, see, seeing as uh, we already introduced David Kelly during our episode uh, back in March, uh, we, we don't have to go into too much of the, the deep details about why we see the suicide as, as likely an actual murder with, with, the, with the fingerprints of the British government all over it. Um, I mean, it seems from my perspective that this was like another JFK assassination or another RFK assassination uh, being made to look 
like one man did it, you know, the single lone gunman or what have you. In this case, the, the, the one man was the man himself, you know, he was a suicide, right? Um, yeah, I guess that's what they do if they want a, you know, a state crime to, to look as if it was a murder, just find that single uh, guy that uh, they had, the patsy, I guess they call it. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. this happened before this happened before you set up the Corbett report. And, and so this, could you talk about how you became acquainted with it enough to, to spark an interest in, in investigating it yourself? Absolutely, yes. So uh, as you indicate, I started the Corbett Report in 2007, but uh, Dr. Kelly uh, died in July of 2003. So this did predate my work or even my research into what became the Corbett Report by a few years. And it was a, uh, obviously it was a big story at the time. I certainly recall hearing about it and reading about it at the time that it was happening and unfolding. It was a mainstream news story in Canada and elsewhere around the world. Um, but why? What was what was really going on with this story, I think, is the real question. And I think it's important just to refresh ourselves of what the official story is so that we can then debunk it. On, on the note of, yes, the lone gunman or the lone assassin idea being in this case, well, I guess it was David Kelly himself who was the lone assassin, apparently, uh, in terms of suicide. I employ the term suicided for this type of case where someone is uh, murdered in a way that is meant to look like suicide in order to essentially stop any further investigation into what this person was saying or what they believed. And I have an entire series of podcast episodes that I've done in the past on the Corbett Report called Requiem for the Suicided, in which I've explored the deaths of several people like Danny Casalero and Gary Webb and Dr. David Kelly. So if people are interested in more of the meat and details of the official story and why it is obviously incorrect. They can go to my Requiem for the Suicided uh, episode about this. But yes, let's set the table for people who don't remember some of the specifics or why it was being covered at the time. And you introduced uh, David Kelly by saying he was a microbiologist and a weapons inspector. And I think most people at the time uh, understood and, and thought of him as a weapons inspector. And of course, that was one of his roles. Uh, he was appointed to the United Nations Special Commission, the UNSCOM, uh, in 1991 as one of its chief weapons inspectors going into Iraq. And he led 10 missions to Iraq between May 1991 and December 1998, obviously at that time seeking to uh, verify compliance with Saddam Hussein's government's disposal of their weapons of mass destruction, right? Which, of course, factored heavily into what came with the invasion in 2003. Um, he also worked with UNSCOM's successor organization, the United Nations Monitoring, Verification and Inspections Commission. And so he was uh, specifically looking at anthrax reduction programs in, in uh, Saddam's Iraq, as well as uh, the um, bioweapons program that was being run at Al-Hakum. Okay, so that's, I think that's the way that the public understands David Kelly. He was a weapons inspector. And so it was in that context that in 2002, the UK government released this dossier on the Iraqi weapons of mass destruction, which stated that uh, Saddam had chemical and biological weapons that were deployable within 45 minutes. And the 45 minute claim was the big sensational headline generating claim at that time as 
essentially it was being sold to the public as, oh my God, Saddam Hussein is crazy. He has weapons of mass destruction. They could be used against us within 45 minutes. And that was a big part of the UK version of the push towards the Iraq war in 2003. Um, now, the BBC came out with a story um, from reporter Andrew Gilligan that claimed that the Downing Street press officer had been pressured to include the 45-minute claim against the uh, advisement of the weapons inspectors saying who were saying this isn't true, that you're just sexing up the dossier. So the sexed up dossier became a big question. The BBC's report became a big scandal. Is this true? If it is true, who was the source for this story? And in the UK, at any rate, when there is a parliamentary privilege about libel and you can't sue someone for libel against the parliament, but they do have the right to demand the source of the accusation or something along those lines. At any rate, there was a judicial uh, process to try, a, a parliamentary inquiry process, I believe, to try to get Andrew Gilligan to reveal his source. He, the BBC wouldn't reveal the source, but it eventually came out that apparently, although this was, I don't know if this was ever definitively concluded, but at any rate, it became apparent that David Kelly was likely the source for Andrew Gilligan's reporting. And so David Kelly was brought before this parliamentary inquiry process. And that we've all seen the footage of him at this inquiry being grilled by the various uh, ministers on this panel. And they were talking about him and, oh, you've been set up to take the, you're the fall guy for this. And he looks very harried in the two second clips that are generally played in the mainstream media when they talk about David Kelly. Look, he was under attack. He was so stressed. He ended up taking his own life. So the story is that uh, somewhere on or around the 17th of July, 2003, uh, Dr. Kelly took a pocket knife that he had had since childhood, um, took a, a copious amounts of coproximal tablets and went out to the woods around his house in Oxfordshire, England, and ended up slitting his own wrists and dying from, I believe, I, I, I will have to double check this, but dying from exsanguination, bleeding out, essentially. Um, well, a combination of factors, actually, related to the coproximal tablets and apparently an undiagnosed coronary artery um, condition that he had. That is the official story. Now, it is, I, I, I won't do disservice to this by saying it is, trivially true that this is not the case. But at any rate, we can summarize, as you already have, but we can just summarize the various threads through which we know that the official story is not true. So, for example, David Kelly had a known aversion to swallowing pills at all, let alone the 26 tablets or whatever it is he was said to have swallowed, um, which, by the way, this coproximal uh, the amount that he had swallowed was not a lethal amount, and that was never even suggested that this was some sort of lethal amount of pills that he had taken. Um, as Dr. Halpin, who you have talked to, has talked about at length, the Hudden report that, the, that was issued from the inquiry, the public inquiry that eventually resulted as a result of the scandal around David Kelly's death, was looking at blood samples, and there is all sorts of questions about the blood samples that they were looking at. One of the doctors involved in that inquiry said that there were five blood samples that uh, he had seen and had access to, but only one of which was actually labeled, which is fa fairly important for an actual forensic examination. Um, and of those five samples, only four ended up getting mentioned in uh, the Hutton Inquiry report, which means one of them just 
kind of disappeared somewhere. Um, and of those four samples, only one was directly connected. NCH47 was uh, the blood sample that was apparently found to contain the elements that are the breakdown elements of this coproximal. Uh, but of that, even in that one sample that apparently contained these elements, uh, the elements that were found were 400% smaller than the amounts that were found in uh, in cases that actually resulted in death. So it wasn't the tablets. Uh, uh, Kelly could not have killed himself in the manner suggested because he had, uh, according to his close confidant, who is on record with this, he had difficulty using his right hand at all for strenuous activities because of an injury that he had received to his elbow a number of years past. So he had difficulty using his hand at all. Uh, apparently, he had to use the pocket knife with his right hand to inflict the wound on the left um, arm and apparently used the pocket knife the wrong way around because of the way the blade was designed. So, um, again, seems unlikely. Uh, the body changed position between the time that it was discovered and the time the police report was filed. The person who discovered the body claimed that the body was resting against a tree, propped up against a tree, head and shoulders propped up. The police report describes the body was found lying completely flat. Um, we do know that there was a helicopter that landed at the scene of the discovery of the body, just 90 minutes after the discovery of the body. We only know about this because of Freedom of Information Act request for the helicopter flight logs, which eventually were released. And although they were released heavily redacted, we do know that the helicopter came within 90 minutes of the discovery of the body, landed at the scene for five minutes, and then took off again. It has never been explained what that helicopter was, who was piloting it, what was on board, what they did, or why they were there. None of that information is available. Um, we do know that David Kelly, the last email that he wrote before he was found dead was an email to Judy Miller, who factors heavily into the whole Iraq story for her reporting on for the New York Times, but is probably not very well remembered uh, for the fact that I believe just one month before 9-11, uh, she had a front page New York Times story on the secret bioweapons program that was illegally being run by the U.S. Uh, Defense Department, which had been going on for decades, but was now being reported on the front page of the New York Times involving anthrax. And this was one month before 9-11. At any rate, his last email was to, to Judy Miller, in which he said there were dark actors playing games. Uh, he had also mentioned that he was likely to be found dead in the woods at some point. And lo and behold, apparently, we are asked to believe that this weapons inspector, the seasoned veteran of the weapons inspections and all of this, who'd been obviously in a very stressful position for a very long time, couldn't take the stress of being questioned before parliamentary members and decided to take his own life. Again, top to bottom, front to back, complete nonsense. There is a lot more to say about that, but it has been said. You've talked about it. I've talked about it. People can look up more information about that or look at sources like Dr. David Halpin for more information about that. But so that's that's ostensibly why this was such a big story at the time. It was a scandal. It was related to the Iraq invasion and the war and what was going on there. And that's why it was covered at all, I think, by the mainstream media. And because it also involved the BBC, the Hutton inquiry that was then launched as a result of this scandal um, came to the conclusion that uh, actually, you know, the BBC was at fault for their story and the, it was just a suicide. And, and Gilligan, Andrew Gilligan, the BBC reporter and others lost their positions at the BBC as a result of this. And the official story became 
it was a suicide. It has been ruled by the Hutton Inquiry. The Hutton Inquiry, however, was a public inquiry, which is very different from a coroner's inquest. And a public inquiry is a special type of essentially a review of government actions that is set up by the UK government that uh, doesn't have any legal force or legal teeth to it whatsoever. Uh, all it can do is issue a report of recommendations, which is what ultimately got released. So for several years, there was a concerted attempt by Dr. David Halpin and others who were involved in a process to try to bring an actual coroner's inquest to the question of David Kelly's death, where there would be real forensic evidence examined, there would be real uh, legal ramifications to the coroner's findings. However, uh, 2010, or was it 2011, um, the UK government uh, considered for about 15 minutes um, the idea that they would hold an inquiry and decided they would not. Uh, there, there will be no, uh, uh, sorry, an inquest. There will be no inquest into David Kelly's death. And that is essentially, essentially where that story has remained for the past decade. And I guess the question might be, okay, well, so why was I interested in this story in the first place? And now, why do I think it is relevant to what we are living through today? I will stop for a moment in case you have any further questions you want to ask before we get into those. Subjects. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. The Iraqi weapons of mass destruction are non-existent, that that was all made up, that it was phony. And, you know, this is the reason why he was killed, because he knew too much. But I, I don't know, I, I'm kind of of the impression that that's kind of like a like a limited hangout kind of idea because I mean this man who worked at Porton Down which was kind of like the UK equivalent of the Fort Detrick in the United States and and he'd had in, in, in he was engaged with uh, like really really high level things like DNA sequencing or at least the, the people that he was coming into contact with did and so maybe it seems like there's a little bit more to it than that. I mean, very important perhaps, but I mean, I think a lot of people already knew though. Maybe I'll ask you the question that the Donald Sutherland's character in the movie JFK, the Oliver Stone movie JFK put to Kevin Costner's character, uh, you know, the, the three questions that you really have to ask to get to the bottom of it. Why was David Kelly killed? Who benefited? And who had the ability to cover it up? Excellent. Yes, very, very, very good, very important questions, equally as important to the JFK assassination as to David Kelly's death as to many other events that are going on. So I'm glad you put it that way. And I think you hit the nail on the head. Yes, the official story that this was a, a fundamentally at base about um, anthrax or weapons of mass destruction, biological weapons and uh, Iraq is a limited hangout. That is part certainly part of the story and part of what David Kelly was involved with. But David Kelly was involved in much more. And you hit the nail on the head because, as I say, the way that I understood David Kelly at the time that it was happening when I was just watching the, the mainstream news coverage of this back in 2003 was as a weapons inspector. And that was the context in which this was framed. And that was that was who he was. That was what he did. But actually, what David Kelly was, was the chief microbiologist at Porton Down. Now, for people who in the audience who do not know about Porton Down, I really suggest they start taking a look at this. As you say, this is essentially the top bioweapons lab in the UK government um, complex, the, uh, a military uh, installation um, that 
has its fingers in a lot of different pies. And for example, um, the Novichok discovery, um, uh, the, the poisoning that took place uh, a, a few years ago in the UK, uh, apparently Russian agents, or so we are asked to believe, spreading Novichok in a ham-handed, weird, weirdly uh, a, a cookie crumb trail way in order to lead all signs of these assassination attempt back to uh, Vladimir Putin. Uh, interestingly enough, that was taking place literally there on the doorstep of Porton Down, just miles away from that facility where, oh yeah, they did have samples of Novichok and they were working on that. There's there's many such examples um, that we could dig up from Porton Down's illustrious past about their involvement with uh, biological weapons research, etc. Again, research that is technically supposedly banned and illegal under the Biological Weapons Treaty um, that supposedly bans this type of research, except, of course, for defensive purposes. And, oh, well, we don't know what the Russians are doing, so we have to develop these weapons in order to counteract them and come up with antidotes and vaccines and blah, blah, blah. So um, that that is an incredibly important part of this David Kelly story and what David Kelly was doing with regards to that. Now, I won't claim to know all of that because a lot of it, of course, is classified and secret, but there are certain things that we do know on the record that David Kelly was involved with that do seem extremely interesting and relevant. And I have a surprising source for at least some of this information. As a Canadian, you'll be able to appreciate the CBC's uh, The Passionate Eye um, documentary series that they've been doing for decades. I believe it is still going on, but I don't watch the CBC, so I wouldn't be able to know. But at any rate, back in 2000, oh, I, I don't know the exact date, but in the early 2000s, they had a investigation about, well, broadly speaking about David Kelly and anthrax and biological weapons. It was called the Anthrax War. And it is available actually up on YouTube even for free viewing if people are interested in it. And I would suggest they do so because it's interesting to me, this exact documentary, the exact documentary, I mean, word for word, the exact documentary could be made by myself or yourself or any any person out there today and would be immediately dismissed by all of the fact checkers in the fact checker universe as misinformation, disinformation, likely Russian misinformation, uh, despite the fact that this was mainstream, this was broadcast on the CBC two decades ago. Hmm, interesting. But at any rate, there's some interesting information in that documentary, including, for example, there's the story of Vladimir Pasechnik, who was a defector from the Russian biological weapons program who had been working with, specifically with, weaponizing anthrax and other biological agents uh, for the Soviets at the, in the Cold War. And in 1989, he defected to the West. And he, interestingly, was debriefed at Porton Down and uh, was then offered a job. He was offered a weird position in which he could start a company that would be housed at Porton Down um, conducting research into anthrax antidotes. Uh, a very interesting setup, especially for someone who was literally just working with the enemy in the Cold War. At any rate, uh, that arrangement is interesting in and of itself, but guess who was one of the debriefers of Vladimir Pesechnik when he came over? Of course, it was David Kelly. David Kelly was involved with that, and apparently he was the one who specifically gave that offer of allowing Possession to work at Porton Down on his anthrax 
antidote research, which again, as I intimated earlier, the defensive biological research is always also offensive research by its very nature. In order to understand how to counteract weaponized anthrax, you have to weaponize anthrax. So there is, of course, the implication that uh, Porton Down was working with uh, weaponizing anthrax. And oh, by the way, Porton Down also had the Ames strain of anthrax, which was the exact strain that was used in the 2001 attacks. So there's that interesting connection as well. Here's another interesting connection. Just days after the anthrax attacks began in the United States, or at least when they were being reported in October of 2001, Vladimir Pesechnik died of an apparent stroke. So the man at Porton Down who was working on the anthrax antidotes and, and weaponization of anthrax died within days of the anthrax attacks in the United States being announced. And again, David Kelly, we know, was involved in that story in some manner, in some capacity. Here's another interesting connection um, that David Kelly had. Uh, in the 19, well, in the 1990s, during the Truth and Reconciliation uh, proceedings in South Africa, um, after the end of apartheid, uh, at which amnesty was given to government workers um, who would confess to the crimes that they had been involved with, uh, the records were released around a very interesting project um, that the South African government had been engaged in um, for some time time in the 1980s called Project Coast. And the man who uh, headed up Project Coast was a cardiologist by the name of Voter Basson. And he was directing this program. And, and uh, according to uh, the, the, the post, I, I, I don't know which post this is, Washington Post, uh, he, quote, spoke candidly to federal officials of global shopping sprees for pathogens and equipment, of plans for epidemics to be sown in black communities, and of cigarettes and letters that were laced with anthrax. And that he also revealed the development of a novel anthrax strain unknown to US officials, a kind of stealth anthrax that Basson claimed could fool tests used to detect the disease. So this was all part of this project coast that he was heading up from 1981 to 1993. The South African National Defense Force had created it and according to multiple testimony from multiple people, it was directed specifically to develop race-specific bioweapons that could be directed at the black population uh, in South Africa under apartheid. And uh, for example, uh, one person who was uh, the director of Project Coast's research, Don Goosen, um, testified that he was ordered by Basson to develop ways, quote, to suppress population growth among blacks and to, quote, search for a black bomb, a biological weapon that would select targets based on skin color. And so we also. That, uh, so you're saying that all of these people, like you have a certain uh, genetic uh, ethnicity, you look for certain traits in the genes that, uh, that that race will have that others don't. And that's basically how you separate them, right? That was, at least according to Gustin and others who were involved in Project Coast, that was the specific aim of Project Coast. It was also confirmed in certain documents that were unearthed by the Truth and Reconciliation Committee. That was the aim. And they were talking about, and Basson has openly talked about, um, attempts to develop a vaccine that would essentially immunize women against sperm, essentially, um, taking elements that are found in human semen and making it so that uh, women would reject that um, by, by way of some sort of uh, adjuvant or something inserted into a vaccine. Now, um, 
according to Bassan, according to others, they didn't, this was never developed to the point where they had some working ability to do this. However, it is interesting to note that there has been for decades the, uh, the accusation, at any rate, made by a number of groups that the tetanus vaccines that were being developed, uh, developed and delivered by the United Nations in the Philippines, in Kenya, in various other countries, has been specifically um, uh, claimed to have been weaponized essentially in exactly that way, a fertility vaccine essentially that would um, uh, make women uh, uh, spontaneously reject uh, pregnancy. And so that that claim at any rate has been out for a long time. And there are various, I've talked about that before and the various reasons for believing that. At any rate, I'm not sure that was specifically related to Project Coast or what uh, voter Bassan had to do with that specifically. But at any rate, that idea has been around for, for many decades. In fact, it was a Rockefeller Foundation project aim at some point to develop a fertility vaccine, a vaccine to actually make women infertile. Um, so this, this is a known possibility. Um, and race-specific bioweapons, of course, was specifically mentioned in the Rebuilding America's Defenses document released by PNAC, famously, infamously, the year before 9-11, in which they were also calling for the new Pearl Harbor to galvanize the American public behind this transformation of the American military. Uh, what transformation? Well, a number of proposals, but one of those proposals was for race-specific bioweapons to be made a politically useful tool. So at any rate, that's the type of thing that Project Coast and Bassan was involved with. And that anthrax war documentary that was again aired on the CBC a couple of decades ago, um, got Bassan on the record to admit he had had multiple meetings with David Kelly. Uh, he wouldn't confirm whether those meetings took place at Portendown or who arranged them, et cetera. But at any rate, we know David Kelly had multiple meetings with uh, voter Bassan. So at any rate, Kelly knew something with regards to Project Coast and what was being worked on there. We do obviously do not have, we're not privy to the details of those. So those are, those are a couple of things that we know Kelly had some connection to. Uh, Pesechnik working on weaponization of anthrax, Bassan working on these race-specific bioweapons, fertility vaccines, anthrax letters, and other such things. So we know that Kelly had some um, sort of connection to that. Here's the other thing that we know. So the question then is, Okay, who was interested in keeping this information suppressed? How do we know it? Who was capable of covering this up? Well, here's a couple of things that we do know. We know that David Kelly was exploring, shortly before his death, he was exploring with publishers in Oxford the possibility of publishing a book, uh, a tell-all, essentially, of his work. And uh, we know this from multiple reporting. There's there's uh, reports that have been made about this. Also in that Anthrax War documentary, they have author Gordon Thomas on the record saying that he would, had been approached by David Kelly to help in the writing of such a book. And when pressed on the fact that, well, you're a uh, you're a government employee, you are privy to the Official Secrets Act in the UK, you can't go public with this information. You know that, right? And Kelly apparently, according to this source claimed that, well, I know that, but if I get someone else to write this book, then it won't be breaching the Official Secrets Act. At any rate, that's what was claimed to be saying, uh, he was saying shortly before his death. Um, we also know that MI5, the British internal intelligence service, the FBI equivalent, if you will, in the UK, um, had sent a letter to David Kelly one week before his death, warning him essentially to keep his mouth shut. And we know this because that letter was found 
unopened, it must be admitted, unopened uh, amongst his mail when he when he died. Um, however, friends and sources that were quoted um, by the Daily Mail in their report on this claimed that he absolutely did know the contents of that letter. This was not some sort of surprising thing to him. He had obviously, I am sure, received over the table and under the table warnings as well as the official formal letter that was actually written to him by MI5 specifically warning him not to spill the secrets. So we know Kelly was very, very much involved in the biological weapons world of the 80s and 90s. And we know that he was being specifically threatened to keep his mouth shut. And we know that he was exploring the possibility of writing a book about his experiences. I think that has an awful lot to do with why we ended up, why he was discovered dead on Harrowdown Hill in July of 2003. And I also should point out, it's not just um, Vladimir Paseshnik who died mysteriously, but you had other people like a Benito Quay, uh, on just a few weeks on November 12th, I think, was found comatose in the street near the laboratory where he worked at the University of Miami Medical School and then died on the 6th. And then on November 16th, uh, Don C. Wiley vanished and has his abandoned rental car was found on the, uh, you know, the, on a bridge outside Memphis, Tennessee. And, you know, he, and, and there were like a whole string of other people, world-class microbiologists. These all seem to point to the idea that this was in, in effect uh, protecting the, the, the reality of biowarfare from the prying eyes, which perhaps leads to the last three and a half years, right? I mean, would you say something like that is accurate or is this just a coincidence? No, I think this is absolutely accurate. And again, I, I don't mean to continue harping on this, but I just think that it is interesting, this anthrax war documentary that was made nearly two decades ago and broadcast on the CBC, did talk about, at that time, they were talking about the, the creation of biological weapons that could be used in biowarfare, the fact that this... Uh, uh, there was an entire industry developing around the idea of biosecurity in the wake of the anthrax uh, attacks of 2001. And they were talking about the billions of dollars that were slushing around through the system for various private contractors at that time um, in order to essentially create an entire industry around this. And it is interesting that, as you say, not just David Kelly, but a number of whistleblowers or potential whistleblowers, people who knew about the the inner workings of this nascent industry um, ended up dying um, shortly or, or around the time of or shortly after the creation of this biosecurity feeding frenzy that was going on. So one example of an interesting connection that deserves further investigation is Bioport, as it was originally known, which was a company that uh, developed an anthrax vaccine that was being shoved in the arms of U.S. military personnel um, in the 1990s and up to 2000s, uh, in which uh, their anthrax vaccine was linked by many researchers to, uh, uh, for example, the Gulf War syndrome that many um, uh, veterans were suffering from and a whole host of health issues that were taking place. And the question, of course, at the time before the anthrax attacks of 2001 was why, uh, why is the US government paying for these vaccines? Why are they trying to cover up 
the demonstrable ill health effects that these vaccines are producing? What is the the, the real threat here? Do we think a vaccine is going to be effective against some sort of weaponized anthrax? What is the point of this? All of those questions, of course, went away in the event of the anthrax attacks, because suddenly there is obviously we need to have our troops vaccinated at, at the very least our troops and maybe the entire U.S. population and maybe the entire global population vaccinated against anthrax. Look, you saw what happened in 2001. Um, Bioport went on to become Emergent Biosolutions and was one of the companies involved in Operation Warp Speed. Of course, the U.S. military uh, operation to warp speed the completely untested vaccines, mRNA vaccines, into the veins of the American population and ultimately the people around the globe. So yes, there is a definite through line, a con connecting through line, a historical continuity between the events that were developing around the death of David Kelly and the, the emergence of the biosecurity grid and what we have seen over the past few years involving many of the same players and many of the same companies that were involved at the time of Kelly's death. Health Organization said recently, or maybe a month or two ago, that the the, the public health emergency uh, of emergency concern is over, you know, according to to, to you know Tedros. Um, but uh, I, I'm worried by warnings that put forward, like like wait, well, almost from the start by uh, Bill Gates, that uh, of all people, that the next virus to come is is potentially going to be even worse, and and there's. A, uh, they're preparing a, a pandemic treaty set to go into effect, I guess, in May of 2024. Um, and, and I know that you've researched uh, the biosecurity as, as much as, as possible, at least from an open source uh, perspective. I mean, could, could you maybe give us a, a hint as to what is coming? Because I know most of us are kind of distracted by the, the, uh, the Russian war in Ukraine. And I mean, it is understandable that it's a distraction, right? But uh, the thing is, that we, if we keep our eye on that biosecurity ball, um, something else, it seems to me, uh, is coming. I mean, yes. Or, or maybe yes. I could ask you, how, how, how will this second pandemic be different mm. from the last in, in terms yeah. of effects and protocols? Excellent question. Well, I think that's obviously the question for our times because it has been my, I've maintained this since the beginning of this generated crisis that we've been living under for the past few years. This was not about a virus. This was about setting up the global infrastructure for cor for responding to any declared public health threat um, at any time. And that is exactly what is taking place. So for people who don't know, please research it. Yes, at, it is at, at this point, they are publicly stating and claiming that they are moving towards the ratification of a potential international pandemic health treaty, which they're not calling a treaty, and or the uh, the amendments to the international health regulations, which is an entire governing fabric that the World Health Organization uses to essentially oppose its will upon all World Health Organization member states, which is basically every nation state on the planet, um, at the next World Health Assembly in May of 2024. Now, of course, that could be a feint or a dupe. They may extend that deadline. They may spring it early. The international health regulations could be 
the amendments could be adopted at any time, essentially, um, that they choose to do so. It may be two separate processes. They may merge these processes. It's deliberately left very confusing and it's hidden behind layers of gobbledygook. They're calling it the uh, proposed uh, uh, agreement uh, on international health concern, blah, blah, blah. There's an intergovernmental negotiating body that's running this process. It's all happening behind closed doors. I have talked about this quite, a, quite in quite a lot of detail recently in my work because I think it is important because they are setting up the infrastructure that will govern the response to whatever declared threat public health threat comes in the future. Now that public health threat very well could be some sort of biological agent, biological weapon, uh, a release of some sort of biological agent, the likes of which Porton Down and Fort Detrick and others have been working on for many years. It could be a completely generated health scare um, that is not an actual public health concern, but they could pretend that it is one. And part of the amendments to the international health regulations and others is essentially to, um, to expand the powers of the World Health Organization to essentially declare anything, even a potential risk to public health can be declared as this type of public health emergency of international concern that can then basically spring into action the World Health Organization and whatever powers it gives itself under its new proposed treaty and or uh, amendments. So that we're facing some very serious concerns. Um, at the very, very best, I think we are facing the possibility, the probability of the hardwiring into global health, infra, public health infrastructure, this multi, multi-billion, perhaps multi-trillion dollar ultimately boondoggle of biosecurity and, and, and uh, big pharma manufacturers and others directly benefiting from this. But at very worst, we are facing the possibility of rele widespread release of some actual biological agent in order to uh, essentially justify this, this infrastructure that's being put in place. And you raise the specter, for example, of Bill Gates, who, as people may or may not know, was writing about, oh, yes, you know, this pandemic, we're treating it this way. But the next one, and he was actually calling it Pandemic 2, as in Pandemic II, like World War II, we're going to have to fight like our, our parents' generation fought World War II. And he, uh, it's some very creepy rhetoric. But beyond the rhetoric, of course, people may or may not know, um, uh, he wrote a book which I reviewed on my uh, on my podcast about how to fight the next pandemic in which he was talking about the types of things that could be embedded in some sort of pandemic treaty, like a global pandemic firefighter response team that could spring into action, be activated by the World Health Organization and spring into action and go to what, whatever place that any sort of public health concern was developing and, well, do what they will, inject people, uh, quarantine people, whatever they need to do to, uh, or whatever they declare they need to do in order to counteract the health crisis. So that's the type of pro threat that we are facing right now. And I think this does it's definitely tie, it, it ties into that story of David Kelly. Yeah, well, uh, in, in the, just a, a couple of minutes left, um, do, do you think that, do you think that there's a, at least a possibility that, uh, that we can back away from it? I mean, through a mass action or, or, or something like that to, to keep this from falling into place? Yes, absolutely. There are signs that this, it is not inevitable. And uh, I think sometimes in independent media spaces, the, uh, the, the various organizations are portrayed as some sort of world bestriding conquerors that can do anything that they want, but that is not the case. Um, often it is uh, Toto, 
pulling back the curtain and finding it's just a, oh, it's just a withered old man pulling some strings back there. And examples of that are come, for example, from the 2009 um, conference of the parties that the UNFCCC, the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, was running in Copenhagen in 2009. Uh, at that particular um, meeting, uh, it was being proposed that this would be the unveiling of some sort of new global global agreements that would form the basis for a new global governance infrastructure of some sort. The EU uh, chief at that time was calling this the beginning of global government in Copenhagen. It's going to happen. That was derailed. It was derailed because of squabbling between developing nations and developed nations over who was going to fund essentially this, this takeover. But at any rate, it was derailed in 2009. Copenhagen did not result in the type of agreement that was being planned at that time. Uh, the UN is running something called Our Common Agenda right now, which was unveiled to the public in 2021 by Secretary General Antonio uh, Guterres, in which uh, essentially it's the creation, the beefing up of UN to give it more teeth uh, in various um, aspects from from cyberspace to outer space and everything in between. Literally, this is part of the remit of this common agenda. They had planned for a summit of the future uh, to be held at the sidelines of, of the UN General Assembly in New York in September of 2023, but that has been now postponed to September of 2024 because they don't quite have all their ducks in a row yet. Um, so I think there is a definite chance that we can derail, forestall, um, uh, or otherwise throw roadblocks in the ways of these various agendas. And they are these are not people who have the ability to dictate reality. They have to respond to reality. Now, there are there are political movements and currents that are developing in a number of countries to to stop the WHO treaty, proposed treaty in its tracks, or even to exit the WHO altogether. In fact, I note there was a couple of dozen congressmen and other high-ranking political officials in the U.S. It was holding a press conference on the steps of the Capitol just a few weeks ago on that very note of, we need to exit the WHO. This is a building political momentum behind some very radical changes that could happen. And I do believe there is a chance at this, but only if people are aware of the gravity of the threat that we're facing. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me on. James Corbett is a filmmaker and a producer of the Corbett Report. Uh, check out his productions, including a rebroadcast of the Requiem for the Suicided David Kelly at CorbettReport.com. That's a wrap for this week and this season. Next week, as our summer season gets underway, we'll present a broadcast of Dmitry Laskaris's June 22nd talk from Winnipeg, Making Peace with Russia, One Handshake at a Time. All the best in the summer. listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Ojikri, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. The show airs on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and is available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been your host, Michael Welch. Thanks once again for joining us.